How do you say that word? Soberquit? Soberquit. Soberquit? Make up a soberquit. 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 Quet. Quet. Q U E T at the end. Yeah. Make up a sober, sober which is the which is the the filthy American pronunciation. Ah, a sober quoi. Yeah, sober quoi. I don't know. It's you French. Mean, I think it's pronounced sobre. I have no idea. I'm terrible. I have no. I, that was a joke about my French accent, not about <laughs> French, by the way. My French accent is awful. You make up a thing about your character. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. Welcome to the Design Games Podcast. What are we talking about in this week's episode, Will? This time we're talking about resolution methods in games, including mechanics and systems and all creatures great and small. If I'm designing a tabletop RPG and I have already in mind as part of the inciting inspiration that got me to design this in the first place, I have a notion for resolution, rule, mechanism, whole system, whatever it is, right? big or small, however much I've zoomed into it. How much do you think it's important for me to consider the context of other games around it when considering if it's the right one for my game? Like if, I, if I'm doing a part by the Apocalypse thing, but I'm but let's say I'm stripping out half of it mm-hmm. and changing a lot, but it's still 2D6, it's still three styles of, re, of results, it's still this, you know, six minus seven to nine, that kind of a thing. To what extent, and maybe for how long, should I care about the context both that it's emerging from and that it will ultimately be delivered to? do you think? I think the the best thing you can do for your game is to consider it in the context of your game, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't want to let your design decisions hinge on what other people are doing all the time. I think that that way lies madness. So that's kind of a separate question. But there's a couple like threads in there, right? Like yeah. one is, I guess, what's the, when, when do you want to use like a, for lack of a better term, a standardized mechanic, use D20 or use fate dice or something that, whether it has some some trademark system or not labeled to it, like when do you want to use something that you feel like your audience already kind of knows versus when do you when are you going to do a completely uh, built from scratch kind of thing? If that's part of the, as you say, the inciting inspiration for your game, like a lot of the time that's the core of your game, right? Like I had, the, I had, I had this idea for this great 3D6 mechanic that works in this way. And sometimes you build the game around that. But I, in terms of priority, I'd say like, what is, what is it, what is it doing for you in your game? Right. That's priority one. And then priority two might be how accessible is it to a certain audience? And that might be where the conversation about like, how does this work in other games or what are kind of, what's kind of on trend or whatever might come into it. Cause I think it's more about accessibility than anything else for me. Like how familiar is it? How easy is it for someone to just pick up? I guess, so then, something like Worldwide Wrestling, which obviously is uh, related to the Powered by the Apocalypse engine, but is not, it's not just a skin. There's a lot of new stuff in it. There's a lot of mm-hmm. stuff that is designed specifically to its world, to its uh, uh, motif and what it's modeling. Was there a time when you had to weigh accessibility versus authenticity to what you were modeling, mm-hmm. right? And when that happens, mm-hmm. uh, did you have to go one way or another? Did you have to, you know, was there a point where you had to kill a darling because one they were fighting or something? Not, I mean, not in that game. Because the, that framework maps so well onto how wrestling works. Like that was why, that's like why it's a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Because I could watch a wrestling show and conceive of all the like 
the different moves happening and the mixed results, the 10 pluses, the botches. Right. As a joke. Like originally, it was a, like I like jokingly would do that because I was like, oh, that's so because it's <laughs> about these like discrete, repeatable moments that happen over and over, but have different results depending on the context. Like that's what wrestling is. So in that game, that tension didn't come up because I, I chose it because it already was in the realm. Right. But a better but a counter example of that I may a more illustrative example would be in Annalise. The first versions of that game had a very strategic die game mm. as the, the the core resolution process where you you rolled a bunch of dice and you paired them off and you compared them to other people's dice and depending on how those comparisons went that was go, gave you this thing or the other thing and and that was a that's a mechanic that I've that kind of mechanic I've, I've revisited over and over and it, it never worked like it's never right it, it, it's always too complicated <laughs> basically um, it's a it's a strategic die game in the middle of this other game. Right. And so far, I've not found another game where that strategic die game is worth it. So in that case, I I had to zoom back out and be like, what is the resolution actually doing in this game? Mm-hmm. Um, I think this gets to one of the points I really wanted to make in this uh, conversation, which is that what your resolution mechanism, set of mechanisms, system, whatever, what it, what it's actually doing in a game is turning questions into answers mm-hmm. right so you have to evaluate what are the questions that come up in this game that i want to be answered and in what fashion do i want the game itself to answer the questions versus relying on a different level of the system right right personal like interpersonal agreement improv style discussion oracular consultation you know like there's there's a lot of different levels at which you can turn a question into an answer and then when we when we build these specific resolution systems to do that i think there's there's a conception i think it's right that like the the resolution system is kind of the heart of the game right for a lot of games where if you really want to know what it's about you'll get the character sheet to see like what your characters are are doing and about and what they care about and then you look at the resolution system to see how how do we do things in this game right how is the promise executed yeah Yeah. realized yeah so in analyze i had to zoom out and be like what are the questions i actually need to answer with this and i didn't need to answer questions about moment to moment die matching strategy the 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 questions are are more about given an array of possible ways this situation can go for this character which one which ones will happen that game uses um a, a a very modified version of Vincent's other kind dice, which are basically uh, in the original thing, like you you kind of have a set cat preset categories and you roll dice and then assign them to the categories to kind of tell you like quick, quiet or right you know forcefully or something and you roll dice and what and you assign them like okay I have two that I assigned to quick and two to forcefully so it's quick and forceful but it's not quiet right and then in Annalise what I what you do is you the players generate all those categories first. So what is going to happen here? Are you going to go with the strange man? Are you going to, is, are the, is, is the strange man going to demand a sacrifice of you or like something else? Mm-hmm. And then you roll the dice and then you assign them based on the categories. So there's a, so it's very, uh, I don't know. It's interesting because I think in a lot of resolution mechanics, right, they're designed to turn infinity into discrete outcomes that we can parse. And in Annalise, and this is one of the things I've, I've always dug about it, is that you get to dramatize in very nearly plain language, essentially, mm-hmm. those potential outcomes, as yeah. opposed to the game saying first, like, you know, well, because you rolled decks, you deal the damage from your bow. Mm-hmm. 
they're like, no, so you get to decide what might happen and then which will happen. Yeah, you basically have like a little like writer's meeting about yeah. what what are all the things that you want to see happen and that makes sense to possibly happen. And then the dice tell you, depending on how the dice fall, is then then constrains those possibilities down to a couple sets and then you kind of choose which ones. Right. Part of doing it in that game is also none of them cancel each other out. So you could have um, a very complicated situation that all bundles together or you could have something where one thing happens mm-hmm. and the other ones don't. And it's very simple. And that's kind of where the, the yeah, the volatility comes in of rolling the dice. And, mm. you know, it's not a simple, uh, let's all agree on what happens next kind of thing. It, it introduces more tension into that decision. Right. Without, yeah, without leaving you at sea either. Mm. I mean, it has the, that sense of the dice can only be read in so many ways. <laughs> so it tells you. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I always, I like because it, it uh, like the other kind dice, right, are kind of a floating action point system almost. And that you roll to find out what kind of action points you have or what value mm-hmm. you have. And then you decide where they go. That That's coldly accurate and insufficient. Mm-hmm. But it's it's accurate in the sense of how those things get assigned. But part of the beauty of both other kind and also uh, the beauty of way, the way that like Annalise works or that the results work in Powered by the Apocalypse games, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, all three of these in very different ways. But is that they lend themselves very quickly to being able to to take on the texture and the motifs and the feelings of play so that you can quickly understand or grok the mechanism. So you're not doing like you say, your complicated dice game Mm. and they are therefore a tool of accessibility into making you talk and think and regard these, the same plastic dice you were using to, to, to play whatever other game last week, but think about it as ghosts and vampires this week and next week, space detectives and next week, you know, whatever that these games turn that resolution mechanism, not just into they're not just accessible. They use that accessibility to guide into mm-hmm. a, into those specific questions, like you say. Yeah, because yeah. that's the thing, right? Dyson, uh, the resolution systems. What what do they resolve? I guess is you know right. Yeah, that's kind of the the core question, right? Like when you're for for you as the designer, like what is this resolving? And that's another way of phrasing what's the question. I think one more point about the accessibility thing is it can come from. It doesn't have to be like oh, if you're familiar with this game, you'll know this game, right? Like. In dark, you use cards, yeah, and the cards you've you've coded the meaning of the cards and the overall how they f- how you use them to achieve things for your character. Like those translate pretty well to the general layperson understanding of what the different suits mean in a deck of cards. Right, that's right? that's the hope. Yeah, and and part of the trick there, right, is that I kept as much of the deck of card jargon as I could. Draw. I added just one or two kind of verbs to it uh, because people know these words already. Yeah, to make that, to take advantage of that accessibility. Mm. So that's one thing to to think about is, you know, how it, this gets back to something I think we, we touched on a lot, which is like thinking about your audience and mm-hmm. who who is likely to be approaching the game and how much you want to fulfill expectations versus work against expectations. With a card mechanic, you can work within them like like you're kind of doing, or you can make it a project of your game to defy the expectations of how cards usually work because you're creating your own, you know, vision of how the card play works or. Right. Yeah. Cause they don't, it doesn't, it's not just uh, uh, mm-hmm. or I don't say just there are great games that do this, but it's not poker skinned and it's not poker right. doing this other thing. Mm-hmm. It's its own resolution mechanism in part, which is, I think, and this is one of the goals with dark was so that everybody who plays it, whether they're a new role player or an established role player is kind of equally new to it. Mm-hmm. So that even though it's accessible and from both directions, there are two doors into that room. Whichever door you come through, you're not necessarily advantaged. 
Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know. Right. Because you're not playing poker. Right. right. So like a, a, a poker experienced person doesn't have an advantage in dark over someone who right. doesn't play poker. Right. And knowing knowing how many cards of each suitor you have in your deck is important. Like mm-hmm. ca- card counting is kind of important in the sense if you can remember whether or not your eight of spades came through. Mm-hmm. But it's not it doesn't advantage you over another player. Right. It's not like right. what are the odds? We each have our own deck. So it's mm-hmm. not a matter of, well, how many how many of these are out there or whatever. It's a little bit of a memory game to help you because you can plan ahead a little bit and say, well, I know I use my jack of clubs, mm. so I, I, I can't use it till I get back until I reshuffle the deck or whatever, mm. which is nice because what, it, what I discovered it did, this wasn't by design, but it's one of the things that when I found I kept is I, I really held on to was the fact that it makes players feel mastery at the same or an accelerated rate than they achieve it. Mm, Part of that sure. because there's certain mastery they can bring in quickly. They can yeah. say, well, I know, how, I know, I know that there's one of each number in each suit, mm. right? That That's useful during play. But so the game doesn't just make you feel like your character's good at stuff. It makes you feel like you're getting good at this. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those things that, that I ended up, when I discovered that was happening, I designed around that instead of designing, like I didn't design to that. Mm. I backed into it. But once it happened, Once it happened, I protected it yeah. and, and, and found out what how many benefits I could draw out of it. Right, so... Yeah, so that's a that's a really great example of the idea of utilizing the the formal features of of the mechanic and how they relate to the the rest of your game. So when I say formal features, I'm kind of talking about like the things you can point to, right? Like here's a deck of cards. It has four suits. Those suits have thirteen numbers, right? right. Four of those are face, or yeah, ace, arguably, but whatever. Yeah. You know. There's the numbers, there's the faces. Uh, you can shuffle them. You can make hands of them. You can look at them in sequence. Like you can look at the front or the back. Like all those, those are all yeah. formal features of the medium that you're using. But then it's how you combine them and how you use them to address the that question to answer process that makes it, that, that, that creates resolution, right? That makes it the mechanic or makes it the system. Do you think, yeah, absolutely, right? I love that, first of all, the formal features as a mm-hmm. way of putting it. That's one of those things that, and I know, I think, I, I think I've heard you yeah, that say comes that out of, me before. That but. comes out of my, like, design education of thinking about that that idea of, of formal versus informal. So I kind of use that's that a, a lot. That's a great, that's a great. <laughs> way to to map the because i have i've thought of them as hooks and i thought of them as points of contact or control mm-hmm. services and stuff but they didn't it didn't create that formal informal and that sense that formal isn't better than informal right it's, no, it's, it's just the point it has different yeah it's just the stuff you can point to yeah 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 um but so i like that it has that formality versus informality as opposed to real versus unreal which mm-hmm. is totally loaded or whatever right because there's yeah. like i said there's a and like we kind of covered in the systems episode like there's all kinds of informal ways of of answering questions and some of them are codified in your game as procedures, and some of them aren't. And that's what I was going to say that I, I really dig about that. The, what you're describing is the way that it doesn't just make a connection between the rule and the system. Mm-hmm. It creates a, a real flow from one to the other. So that, so that you're saying, by using these formal features, by the fact that, that you know, we use, obviously we know how to read the top of the die. That's one, right? Mm-hmm. That, everybody, that You know when a die is showing a number. But imagine a game, Odyssey was this for a time, where you read the other faces of the dice in different ways. Mm-hmm. Right, and so there you're creating some tension with how your audience might expect to encounter that die. Right. And then you have to decide, is that worth the trade-off? Right, and in, and Odyssey, in Odyssey it wasn't. It wasn't, yeah. It wasn't, but there's still a great, and I, again, give this <clears> to the audience, which is that there was a neat thing, which is knowing what's on the opposite side of a six-sided die, which would be the same on every six-sided die, right, that goes one to six or opposite each other and so forth down. It again created a feeling of mastery that was kind of cool. Well, I know that. And every time I can pull out that piece of information, it was neat. 
Um, but what it wasn't doing was affecting the system in a way that I liked. It was a mm -hmm. neat little rule, but it wasn't interacting with the fiction. It wasn't interacting with the procedure the, of play. It was getting a little fuzzy. Yeah. I had too many. I had too many procedures. But this kind of talk about the way that that you address and choose, in some cases, to ignore the formal system. Like, like uh, if I wanted to, I could have. This one of the reasons I love cards is there's we, we, because they've been around forever. We've had terms for every formal aspect of the card. But mm -hmm. can you imagine if dice, if, if, if we if we were from a, a culture or a time or anything that said the eastern die does this or the or the die that is west of that of the sure. center die, right? Yeah. But these kind of formal, we had different formalities or different mm -hmm. formal notions for dice. We we could be using and abandoning them, uh, using and dropping them game to game in a way that we do with cards, mm -hmm. whether they're regular poker decks or whatever, all the time. But dice, I think one of the reasons that, that RPGs attached to them is because of the way that they present a sense of finality without a lot of extraneous information, but we could attach all kinds of information to them if we wanted yeah. to, to help fuse rule and system. I'm starting to think about, and tell me what you think about this, your, the, the, the resolution, the, you know, the act of drawing the cards, the rolling the dice. Perhaps an alternate way of phrasing it is that, or, or perhaps the process by which it turns a question into an answer is it looks at the, uh, it looks at a set of inputs of some kind, uh, usually based on your on character stuff, character traits, and how you're playing, and all that stuff. And then it does something, and then generates outputs, which generally are going into the reward cycles. Mm -hmm. As a functional matter of like, how do I decide on a resolution system? Mm -hmm. Those can be tightly integrated in with your inputs and outputs, or they can be kind of disassociated from the inputs and outputs. And that's another continuum to to look at this uh this question right the output could literally be that's that's fascinating uh the output could literally be currency it could literally mm -hmm. just be the part of the reward cycle yeah or it can inform the reward cycle in different ways like mm -hmm. if, you, if you have one reward cycle but two resolution methods or if you have mm -hmm. one resolution method but three reward cycles right. or whatever right? and i'd argue that things. that's that's probably that's common yeah actually yeah. when you look at any any sufficiently complex game is going to have a, a a series of overlapping right resolution mechanisms that might all be within the quote resolution mechanic and then those are feeding into some kind of overlapping series of right um, yeah they're almost never as neat as the terminology can make them sound mm -hmm. they're often and i'm not that i want to say cluttered but that they're over like you say overlapping or or interacting right. riffing on each other or mm -hmm. feeding each other in different ways like um i get gold for killing a monster and it has gold in its treasure hoard and i get that gold mm -hmm. i can use it to buy a thing I can use it to hire a hireling. I can use it. I can convert right. it to XP depending on the edition, right? So it's feeding that same result is feeding off into different reward cycles. Right. But or once you have overcome the encounter, you get experience and you get the treasure, right? Right, and then those are two different reward cycles that and that interact. that resolution of the at the encounter level is itself contains a myriad of resolution systems for right. each of the character classes. And so so yeah, because uh, the the resolution itself can occur at, at a number of scales, right? And mm -hmm. kind of we we used to talk about kind of a binary sense of like resolving character tasks versus resolving of the, the scene level question. Right. Task resolution versus conflict resolution, which I think has been demonstrated to be again, more of a continuum and less of a binary. Yeah. And also occurring at multiple levels and can be again, formally declared as this is resolution in this game or be left to the informal decision-making about how things happen and when. But it's another thing where you can think about scale. Like, what's the scale of the fictional 
whatever fictional context mm -hmm. that your resolution is resolving. Is the scale an atomic character decision? I decide to do this. Let's see if it happens or not. Right. Is the scale between multiple characters? Is the scale... The whole battlefield. Yeah, the whole it? battlefield. Yeah. Is the scale... Uh, here is, like, how is this scene going to go? You, you could imagine a game where you, you do something at the very beginning of the game and that informs the five sessions later ending of the game right. as like a very zoomed out resolution. Like we know in five sessions, everyone's going to die because we did this stuff in the first 10 minutes of the game. Right. But the rest of the game is structured so that it's fun to get there. Right. Right. That's uh, the three of the, and I'm sure there are more than these, but three of the types or flavors or varieties of, of, of these kinds of resolutions that I think about are the fictional, the non-fictional and the dramatic mm -hmm. scene resolution is dramatic because a scene can be any length, it can be any length of time in, the, in reality and in fiction, in fiction and in nonfiction. But we know when a scene is over that we're gonna roll this die and find out whatever, or draw a card or assign a die or whatever mm. it is. Fictional is this spell lasts for 10 minutes. And it doesn't last for 10 real world minutes, it lasts for 10 elf world minutes, for mm. 10 character world minutes, right? Um, and then the nonfiction is this effect lasts for one session. Which is a, can be dramatic, yeah, but yeah, is yeah. not necessarily, okay. right? Or lasts for one hour of play. Mm -hmm. I don't know a game that does that, but could, right? You could say however much, however many dungeon rooms you can get through in an hour, well, this thing works. One, but that's yeah, yeah. One of one of my micro games is uh, it's over in an hour. Like you play for an hour. Oh, that's someone, right. Someone yeah, has yeah. a timer, or someone is tasked with the job of keeping track of time. And at the end of the hour, there's an end state for the game, and that depending on how everyone has played, right? You find out, and it's possible to get cut off. And be like, oh no, crow crow comes and your, cre oh, your kingdom I totally falls. I forgot about that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so I'm, I'm sure there are more than those, right? But those three mm -hmm. are great places to start and riffing on the notion of because scale can be. I mean, like obviously yeah. the difference between a fictional minute and a fictional year mm -hmm. is still a, a different scale than the question of say a fictional minute and a non-fictional year yeah. or vice versa. I right? think the but, the we we tend and I think so far I've been talking about you know, resolving things in the fiction mm -hmm. of the game, right? But yeah, your your resolution systems could certainly answer questions about the at-the-table experience playing the game. Right, right? and I, I think the reward mechanic is one, or the, or the reward cycle is one of the things that moves stuff from the resolution of the yeah. game to the experience of the player that way mm -hmm. so that they do inform each other or so that, or you know, actually some of them, I, I, I'm homing in on time here for scale, which is not necessarily... Mm -hmm. Uh, the best apt way to do it, but any any mechanism, any resource that the player has, which is a non-fiction resource, I have this coin mm -hmm. that I have two of that I can spend to make fictional things happen. Or and those things could be completely fictional. They could be fictional, creative non or creative fiction, if you will. Mm -hmm. They could be dramatic, which is to say, I get to create a scene. How long is the scene? Well, we're, we're going to spend two minutes on it, but it'll take the character a year, right? All these things are interacting and spinning at different speeds. Yeah. Um, but if the resolution mechanic is such that we're like uh, Dread, right? Uh, the Jenga Tower is both fictional and non-fictional. Yeah. It has a fictional effect, but it has it is a skill game. Yes. Yeah. Um, and having that real world, that non-fiction element to it is mm -hmm. part of migrating or expanding the terror of the game, the feeling of dread in the game, no pun intended, or not by me, but I'm sure, you know, in reality. <laughs> um, but migrating the dread, expanding the dread to everybody um, and making it, both inevitable and impossible to just say no. Let's just reroll that. <laughs> but so that that that's that that's blurring that line 
And when I, when I think about it, this might be one of the reasons why I don't, I know the number one reason why I don't play Dread more is that I am terrible at Jenga. I love Dread, but I don't play very often because I'm terrible at Jenga. But the, I think the other thing is that there's something about the way that interacts dramatically and non-fictionally in that it's very effective. And therefore, I often am like, I want to play a game about Dread. I don't want to play a game that literally makes me feel Dread. And Dread <laughs> does that very well. But that's an example yeah. of game, right? Hitting those uh, uh, three, all three areas in different ways just through its resolution mechanic is doing so much of that. Mm -hmm. One of the main elements of elegance, which I think a lot of us look for in, in design, is I think how well your various overlapping rules and systems have that feeling of, of hitting all the different points through one kind of felt swoop, right? And the, the resolution in, in that sense is something that, that could encapsulate the entire mechanical experience. And then it, in Dread, it, it also expands into the player skill experience and expands into the aesthetic experience, right? So it's great in that way. I think a lot of kind of the uh, short form or kind of one-shot oriented games tend to have that more holistic resolution kind of thing where you everything you do is feeding into uh, the process and then it's feeding out to the reward cycle and then it directly informs the stuff you can do further down the line. Right. Other games that are designed to have a more more affordance for maybe player initiative or more affordance for long-term play are a little more picky and choosy about what, when you pick up the dice, right? Like when you actually go to resolve a thing, as opposed to every mechanical interaction is going to end up involving... And how many times you're yeah. going to do it, right? I think that the reason that those are related is there's, there's almost a chicken and the egg thing in the, especially in the micro games, is that game elegant because it's short or is it short because, yeah, because it only does one thing? Right, <laughs> yeah. And along... And which, I mean, yeah, which is not a judgment either, mm -hmm. yeah. But I think it is. I think it is easier when you have a bounded play space. Yeah. When you're like, we're going to play like in my micro game. I mentioned witness the murder of your father and be ashamed, young prince. You play for an hour, and it's a token based. Do I believe what you're saying or not? Thing, and then there's some end states. That is not sustainable for a six hour game. Before a one hour game, right? It's great. If I'm playing Burning Wheel for a year, that's not enough to get me through that game. Um, if I'm playing my micro game for an hour, it is. Right. So, One of the, one of the ways I always think about is, um, and this again, I, I bring up one of the, just very quickly, a, a video game analogy, which is it usually takes more buttons to fill 10 hours of play than it takes to fill one hour of play. Mm -hmm. Right? It's, it's, it can be fun to, to push one button at just the right time for an hour and get, that, and get good at that. If you want a game to be fun for 10 hours, you probably need more things to press. And that's kind of what RPGs, as they get more ornate, they seem, mm -hmm. to, they, they seem to support more and more and longer and longer play. Um, even if that game like, uh, say, Dread or Fiasco, it plays for a shorter length of time, but you can play it over and over again, it still only needs so many inputs because the players are the analog feature that bring enough variety, enough different ways, and make little subtle demands in each other. Okay, so you can push this button really, really fast. In the next game, I'm going to ask you to push it steady and get the rhythm just right or whatever, right? But that the same number of small inputs can be riffed on and challenged each other with and played in different ways. And they provide context for all this setup to the resolution, the creation of stuff to be resolved, mm -hmm. um, which is analog and is done just through regular plain speech. 
one of the things I think, which is why I like the term elegant when we design or describe games that we appreciate in these ways, this is where I think you can see how resolution methods and mechanic from, from, from a single mechanism to a whole system are definitely artful. They're definitely things to be crafted. They're not just po policy or procedure, which can also be artful, but I mean, they're not just the, the rote process mm -hmm. of roll a die, read the number, is that when you play a game, card game, board game, video game, RPG, whatever it is, and you say that is exactly correct. That mm -hmm. is exactly what it is like to be a member of the Medici family in that century or whatever it is, right? Yeah. That ability to get it in one rule, which could be 10,000 words, right? If it's a board game and it has one mechanism, why do I say 10,000 words? But it could be 10 pages or it can be whatever. But to get it right in one stroke, like you say, to cut, to, to swing the brush and, and get a nice, beautiful mark on, on all 10 of the things you wanted to talk about. Right. In a way, game, micro games aren't micro. I mean, in some ways, I actually hate this as a term for them. What they are is they're succinct. Sure, right? yeah. They're, they're, it's like brevity, mm -hmm. right? So, they're, that's, so it's, again, an evidence of how games are, are, can, can be prosaic or poetic, and mm -hmm. neither is better than the other, but they're different goals, is the game that is, look how beautifully that makes, that, that encapsulates a Coen Brother movie in, in, in one list of items. Look how mm -hmm. beautifully that feels like The Odyssey. Look how beautifully that uh, feels like Dracula. Yeah. I think that intuitively understandable way to experience a mechanism or rules, something we've very cold and you know mechanical words for these things, mm -hmm. but that they are very poetic. I think it's important not to overlook, right? To, to, I, think it's, I, I think it's important to appreciate the fact that a game that is succinct or brief that says something that we already know to be true in a way that is beautiful or so that says, yes, that's what I, that's, thank you. That's yeah. what I was trying to say. Well, and so, and so often the, whether it's the best or the most memorable or, or whatever, but the, for me, some of the most satisfying game experiences are the ones where you, you engage with the system, you do what the, the rules ask you to do, um, along with all the inner character play and other higher level social stuff. And then you you have an outcome where you're like where everything aligns. You're like, of course that's what happens, <laughs> right? Right. Like, right. Of course that's what happens. That makes so much sense based on all the stuff that has happened before. But procedurally, it's a function of a random die roll or something. But the the game has structured you and your friends into a certain space where the the mechanisms then back up yeah. the experience and provide an output that a lot of the time, I think in a well-designed game, anything it could be telling you then, you would say, yes, that feels right. Of course we got here. Right. Right. They're all answers to the question. It's when you get an answer that's like, where did that come from? That's when, the, for me, the game starts to be like, is this the rule? Is this me? Is this, you know, where did, where did that weird out from left field thing come from? And sometimes it gets reincorporated back in and you're like, right. oh, okay, now I see it. And sometimes it's like, oh, that really just didn't do anything for me. And th this is a, this is a space, right? Where, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is a space where RPGs again have a unique strength, and I think can be inherently narrative as opposed to just, or it can be inherently, I should say, dramatic as opposed to just narrative. A narrative, I should point out, for my definition, any three things that happen in us in in time are narrative. We will make them narrative. They can yeah. be made narrative. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily dramatic. Dramatic is when there's like rising action and falling action. There are all kinds of different ways to arrive at dramatic. But three things that happen in order in time that are related in a row, whether they form a story, mm -hmm. can be narrative adjective form. Uh, and in a game, games are naturally narrative because they unfold over time and they have a through line. Right. Chess can be narrative. It's just never going to be satisfying because mm -hmm. it will always well, end. There's only two endings. It's, I mean, looking, like, looking back at any session, yeah. right? Like yeah. is, there is a narrative there that may be more, more right. or well, less compelling. Or, or even as it's happening, which is essentially the narrative that we see in, in sports, 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's why commentators are not obnoxious. I mean, they can be obnoxious, but it's why they're they're welcome. And then while they they it's can they serve exist. an important job, right, is because yeah. you can find that narrative as it's happening, even if it's not the same narrative that we agree on happened mm-hmm. in hindsight. Right. Both have value. Well, that's the uh, this is something that comes up in wrestling fandom a lot. How in in a big dramatic real sports moment, mm-hmm. uh, they'll use the phrase this couldn't be better if it was scripted. <laughs> right. Right. Like kind of acknowledging the fact that wait a second, if you actually script this stuff. It'll always be exciting, theoretically, like ideally, um, <laughs> assuming a certain amount of competence on the, on the side of those who, who do the scripting. But that idea of like, oh, thankfully, this uh, set of random events has culminated in a point that feels dramatic, right? Right. Is, is, is something that's celebrated in, comment, in sports commentary all over in like wrestling land is like, well, that's what we do. It's all scripted. Like, cause the idea is it's all dramatic, you know, to, to create that yeah. drama, not just narrative. Right. Exactly. Idea. And in, and in, in a game in which, like you say, where that, where that, that left field output mm-hmm. occurs at the end, right? That yeah. can be narrative, but is not traditionally dramatic mm-hmm. because the first and second actor where things come in from out of the blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But so if you have a game that has three phases and things are still being introduced, again, I'm going to use in this case, because when it comes to the act structure, I'm going to use fiasco at the tilt, you, you insert new things happen mm-hmm. in the game. Or uh, as I've said uh, before about dogs in the vineyard in dogs, in the vineyard, the dogs are the tilt, right? We, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we predict, we, we set up what this town was going through in the first act mm-hmm. and the dogs come in and change everything. Yeah. Fix it or make it worse or whatever it is. <laughs> but in that dynamic, when you're choosing to add stuff, when you're choosing to answer stuff, when you're choosing to add options or close options, these are things, to a certain extent, I guess, what you're choosing to resolve. Yeah. These are aspects that are inherently dramatic in the sense of, can be dramatic in the sense of timing and the sense of elevation. I, it would be difficult to do, but a, a rule that was essentially when everybody just can't take it anymore and they have to know who the killer is, mm-hmm. begin phase three. And it's, a game yeah. wants to do that, I mean, but it has to find an artificial way to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's basically how, how Annalise works. It's like, when you guys are are done making stuff up and ready to just find out what the hell happens already, <laughs> go to the confrontation phase. It's basically <laughs> how it's phrased. But, but I feel like because it's hard to codify that moment. Yeah, is part of it. Uh, that that game uses a little more restrained language yeah. to try and describe it. But but I think also it's allusions though, right? To, to the dr- the dramas that it is specifically inspired by, yeah. that it is informed by, mm-hmm. mean that there's a lot of information. It's easier for us to establish when we feel that way, right? Than to say when this, when when twelve of these traits have been established, <laughs> right. which was again early in the process. I tried to have like a mechanical, like gated kind of thing, like when this, yeah, when when the characters are in this state mechanically, you go to this phase, and it was like brilliant when it lined up, but the chances of it lining up were low. Eighty percent of the people who play this will be like, "Oh, that was kind of weird. We weren't ready to do that," and the twenty percent be like, "This is brilliant." Right. Just be like, look, you guys figure it out. You know, you're 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 smart, creative people. You know when it's time. Right. Is kind of the the idea. And that's part of the one of the things I think that we ascribe elegance to as players, and that I am sometimes hesitant to ascribe as a designer is especially my own stuff, um, which is that thing where at the end, and you say that that of course that's what happened, is the realization that the game got us to a place that any answer, like you say, that any answer it gave us would have been fitting or satisfying or, or would have felt mm. perfect. And so part of the elegance is that the game got us to this place where its core through line, its core resolution, no matter what number came up on the die was going to be apt, was going to mm. be was going to be dramatically accessible or acceptable or celebrated 
Yeah. Right? It was going to fit. Dramatically fulfilling. Dramatically fulfilling. Yeah. And that's not easy to get everybody necessarily into that yeah. spot. But it's also not wholly mechanical. Right. Right? Because yeah. that's, again, part of there are games in which, like, Tune, where the crazy, or any, well, lots of comedy games, where the, where the crazy result is contextualized as good where mm-hmm. the gonzo shit that's going to happen is going to be suitably gonzo yeah. so how you contextualize that space so that the outputs feel right because mm-hmm. there's, there's a thing in rpgs which is if, if players want to spoil the mood of the game they will simply do so right the, the, a game cannot an rpg cannot be completely protected from that right you can't you can't stop griefing like i, I think that that's or at least that is that is my opinion no procedural text can stop a person from being like this i don't want to play this game but I'm sitting here anyway, and I'm going to ruin it for everyone. Right. Or, or yeah, I mean, there's so many factors. Does every game need a resolution mechanic? Well, I have an answer, but I'm... Yeah, all I want to say is that I honestly don't know. Every because, role-playing game, I right, suppose. Right, right. I, I, I would get into a definition battle about resolution mechanic, sure. which implies to me that probably they do, and we just want to call it, I want to call it something else, but mm-hmm. I don't know. That's a great question. What is your answer? My answer is that you always need something to turn questions into answers or to, to remove, remove uncertainty so that you know that one thing is happening and not the other thing. And traditionally that has happened with formal rules that are dedicated towards doing, resolving, do I do this or not? Do I succeed in this action or not? But I think as I've mentioned, those decisions can be made higher up in the biggest system as well. Be like a, when we all agree what happens, it happens kind of thing or improv style, yes and role play. Right. Those, still, those things, I think, still remove uncertainty and still turn questions into answers. And so thus they are still resolving what needs to be resolved for the game to progress. Mm-hmm. But they may not have all the formal features of a bolded in your text resolution system. When you are not playing a game, anything is possible. When you sit down to play a game in which anything is possible, the game has not been made yet. Right. So I, I guess, I, yeah, I would agree that that means that you need a resolution mechanic of some type or you haven't made a game yet. And so I think, I think the, the, the thing to think about when you're working on your game is maybe where does the decision need to take place? At what level of player interaction mm-hmm. do you need to turn questions into answers? And it could be a, a high level where it feels more like air quotes feels more like structure or something like that or it could be at a a fine-grained atomic level where it feels more like rolling dice so when is so when is more of the 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 key question and it's when and what whether you want to call it a a singular resolution system or not that process is going to happen in your game somewhere so you need to i would suggest that that by being intentional and calling it out and codifying it that will be to the benefit of your game when it is no longer fun to wonder what will happen, or you cannot bear waiting to find out, pick up your dice and roll them. Thank you for listening to the Design Games Podcast. Sometimes our conversations wander a bit afield, and so we package them as backer-only special episodes for our Patreon backers and supporters at patreon.com. To hear these episodes for yourself, visit patreon.com slash ndpauletta or patreon.com slash wordwill. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...